Lloyd Newson, OBE, is a director, dancer, and choreographer. He formed Deviate Physical Theatre in 1986, and the company went on to tour across the world for decades, winning 55 national and international awards, including the Prix Italia, Rose d'Or, and an International Emmy Award. Shows include the hard-hitting, physically combative, politically charged, My Sex Hour Dance, Dead Dreams of Monochrome Men, poetic pieces with more of a sense of narrative and or design, Strange Fish, Enter Achilles and The Cost of Living, and the later shows where Lloyd combined his physical languages with verbatim text. To be straight with you, can we talk about this and John? Lloyd retired in 2022 and DV8 was closed down. Some of the work is archived through digital theatre and the company archives are now part of the theatre collection at Bristol University. I spoke to Lloyd late in 2022 about the journey of DV8's work, the rage and sense of injustice that drove him, whether dance can indeed bring about social change and how he strove to make work that did what it said on the tim. He also spoke about what he looked for in a dancer, how it wasn't till the end of his career that he understood the support he needed in the studio, the burnout that led him to retire, and the pleasures he is finding in life now, fishing and spending time with family and friends. Lloyd Newson, thank you very much indeed for joining me. A pleasure. It's really, uh, really exciting for me to be able to speak to you. Um, so, Lloyd, you retired earlier this year, and actually you're the first person I've interviewed who isn't making work and isn't planning on making work. So it's really amazing to be able to speak to you as you're looking back at a lifetime spent making dance. I'm almost envious of the doneness of the position and certainly of the space I hope you're finding. And I love the photo, by the way, of you uh, gone fishing on the Deviate website. Um, and I wanted to start by asking you if you've been retired long enough to gain some distance and get a new perspective on the body of work you've made. How does that feel and how does it feel to look back at it all? Um well, I'm not sure I, I have a new perspective on, as you refer to it, my body of work. I've been pretty clear about the arch of my work and what it meant. And it's different different stages from the very early, hard-hitting, physically combative, politically charged works like My Sex, Our Dance and Dead Dreams Monochrome Men, which we did in mm. when the company was first formed in 1986. And we did that for a few years until about 1990. And then... Uh, and obviously those works were in response to what was happening at the time. The Tory government brought in mm. Section 28 in 1988, and, of course, the HIV-AIDS pandemic was raging. So those works were uh, fairly serious because those subjects were pretty serious. Um, and they were more than just sort of combative and, and uh, physically aggressive works. They contained many different elements and even moments of tenderness. But overall, I think they were pretty short and understandably, considering the subject matter, on humour. There were a few, there were virtually no women in those two pieces I mentioned. And uh, it was also felt rather joyless. And I think both Nigel and I felt that after the four years of doing that type of work, to the uh, extent actually that Nigel decided to take a break from DV8. Um, but I was very conscious and felt very similarly to him. And I really did crave a more poetic, playful approach and was also excited about using mm. larger sets within the work to try and progress the meaning and the narratives of the stories I was telling rather than deal, as we had often in the past, very dark black theatre boxes. So for the next decade and a half, that is from 1990 until mid-2000s, except for uh, two works, MSM and Edra Achilles, women featured much more in my work. Uh, Wendy Houston was a major mm. protagonist in If Only and Strange Fish, uh, which was a sort of the beginning of that work in, from 1990 onwards. Um, and then, you know, skip 15 years to about 2005 when I did Just for Show, which was a show which we worked with the virtual projections and was looking at the sort of you know, notion of image and, uh, you know, I suppose in many ways that 
amount of time that we took trying to master these virtual projections at times perhaps distracted from uh, the work itself to a degree. Um, oh, yeah, it really is. Uh, and also we didn't have the budget to really use really uh, experienced um, AV and uh, animators and visual designers. So we were, it was a bit of a hodgepodge really trying to get the images together and work with this new this technology. We didn't really understand how it worked and we we're discovering at the same time. Um, but by the end of 2005, I just felt, and I suppose that, that was a moment when I looked back and I thought, I cannot keep saying and talking about the issues that really interest me in movement alone. I had to mm. uh, resort to words. And there's a reason we're having this interview using words and I'm not dancing um, the movements. I'm sure they'd be fascinating, but I'm not sure anyone would understand what I was it would be fun, though. I'd like to see no, it. Well, I probably wouldn't like to do it um, because I, 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 <laughs> I don't know how vague it could become. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, and the dancers, of course, when they finished rehearsals, would, wouldn't talk to one another in movement phrases. They'd be chatting to one another endlessly and consistently about things that were important to them. Um, so that's when I decided to start doing verbatim work. And roughly, you know, the next arch of my work were from 2006 to 2015 uh, was verbatim works. And I made three verbatim works then, To Be Straight With You, which was a work about the three Abrahamic religions and homosexuality. And, of course, if you're dealing with mm -hmm. religious texts, they're words on a page. So you've got to deal with those words. Mm -hmm. The second work was Can We Talk About This, which was largely inspired having worked on to be straight with you and interviewed many gay Muslims, mm. gauging the level of fear if they came out within their own communities. And these remember, well, not remember, I'm, <laughs> uh, the uh, interviewees all had to reside in Britain. So we just mm. looked at, um, yeah, people, people who interviewed were British residents. Um, and it was incredible just how fearful many of these lesbian and gay men were um, with regards to their own communities. Mm. So can we talk about this was looking at Islam and freedom of speech and, um, you know, there'd been the Theo van Gogh murder in Amsterdam and those things were playing on my mind. There also was a program uh, called Gay Muslims that had been broadcast on Channel 4 and out of the 200 interviewees, how many do you think were happy to have their face shown? Oh, so this okay. is, again, British gay Muslims on a British television station. Well, a small what? number, I imagine. One person. Wow. Now, that was not true in our experience and also, in the, and you know, generally when we spoke to gay Jews or gay um, Christians, they're much more, on the whole, prepared to ident be identified. Mm. Um and then the third work was John, you know, a work that followed the life of working class man, um, strange enough, called John. And uh, that sort of ends the art, really, of, of the work. So I don't think, I think I was always quite clear about my need to change and evolve and not repeat myself. Mm, and you, yeah. not a lot has changed looking back, other than to say um, you know, I did redo Enter Achilles for a Rombear in 2019-2020. But the one thing I'd probably add when I do look back, particularly after occasionally I go and see dance, but not often uh, anymore, I always come back and the thing that strikes me is that all my work was about something. It wasn't just about abstract movement patterns or, or kinesthetics per se. It was always about a subject matter. Yeah, and not just any subject matter, but it seems like you made work about what hurt you or what confused you personally and societally. Uh, is that right? You were drawn to areas of pain or conflict or complexity or difficulty or inequality, things that didn't didn't feel right for you or, or weren't right, in fact. I don't think it was so much about issues that hurt me. Um, it was more about issues where I saw social injustice and power mm. abuses 
quality. And in many ways, that would infuriate me. Mm. Um, and so rather than being hurt or confused, if anything, if I had to say there was any one thing that drove me, it's often anger, um, anger at the injustice I saw around me. Mm. Uh, and, but there were times, of course, when I was just curious and trying to work through issues, which, um, you know, my basically is why I set up the company. There were just issues that... I felt I wanted to look at and examine and address and having a platform where I could do that in front of an audience was great. Um, and I suppose in many ways when I was, when there was a commission that came up for the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and, uh, you know, we were wined and dined by um, the people running the Olympics Arts Festival, and I thought to myself, I wonder who gets invited to the big party because, you know, they had the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and mm. they were doing Olympics. And I just pondered who didn't get invited, um, who were the people who weren't part of the big celebration, who weren't on the invite list, because quite often I've not been on the invite mm. list for all sorts of reasons, um, some of them understandably. Uh, so we... Um, you know, we employed a very broad range of dancer at the time. We had uh, Dinah Pine Myers, who worked with me for about four projects. At that point, she was in her 80s. We worked with a fat dancer. We worked with a couple of disabled performers, including the incredible David Toole, mm -hmm. who had legs but was an incredible mover. And um, the lead protagonist that we used uh, was an angry working-class Scottish character. Mm. Um, and I think the reason he had quite a predominant role in the work, and certainly when we made the film, we had to reduce a lot of the more, a lot of the scenes, and some of those scenes I really, that we dropped for the film, I really adored, but we had to make something that was very narratively, even more narratively driven mm. for TV, because TV eats narrative. Um, but that working class, uh, my, I suppose my working class backgrounds is why a number of my characters, be it John or, or Eddie in uh, The Cost of Living, is because both my parents come from a working class background. They left high school when they were 15. Um, and I went, I did my final years at a very rough working class school and out of the 52 students who sat their final year high school exams, only six passed. Mm. And they weren't stupid people. They were just at a school that did not have um, highly experienced teachers. Many of them were coming, were new out of college, and they did their very best. But we didn't have the resources uh, or the approach that the richer eastern suburbs in Melbourne and Victoria had uh, and that when I got to university I started discovering that and I really just scraped through um, my high school exams on pure and applied mathematics but then when I went and did maths in my first year at university and I was on a playing field um, you know basically I think got, I, well I not think I know I got two d's for pure and pure and applied maths and the mm -hmm. fail rate was an e so it was really close line and I remember moving into halls of residence and the first time I sat down at a table for dinner and all these students from private schools were talking about their straight A's and, of course, I kept my mouth completely zipped. And um, But when we were all on an equal playing field, we had the same lecturers and the same opportunities to studies and the same exam papers to revise on, uh, I got a distinction. So how could I have gone from, you know, well, that just goes to show if yeah. people are playing a level playing field, how the situations can vary so rapidly, even within one year. And I suppose in many ways I feel very upset that some of those people who are at my school who were smart, but they just came from uh, areas that where they didn't weren't given incentives or the support structures that uh, wealthier, more affluent students and families have mm, they've been failed basically by society i mean they hadn't been given the opportunities that were their right <laughs> it, well they it, it's it is the inequalities and i'm not i don't want to be sort of like this person that moans and goes oh that's poor working class people i think there's a lot of sort of 
people playing victim status. But I do think that um, it is very frustrating. It's very frustrating when you see there's inequalities. And people, uh, but we see in certainly in Britain, from poor Chinese uh, people, students from poor Chinese backgrounds do very well academically mm. because there is an ethos within that culture of people to achieve academically. So it's not all related just to um, economics. It's to do with attitude and cultural attitudes. Yeah. Um, and as we know currently in Britain, working class white boys are at the bottom. I think with, I think it's with Jamaican um, boys. But all of a sudden Nigerian Nigerian students are much better than, you know, there's lots of subtle divisions between different groups, even within the black community. So there's a lot to be said for culture. It's not all, um, oh, well, I'm, I was from a working class background and I'm a complete victim. And I sort of, I have a slight kick reaction against um, people automatically adopting, because I think there's a lot of sort of uh, adoption of victim culture at the moment. Yeah, okay. Um, but that rage then and that sense of injustice um, that you discovered, I guess, um, has seen you through a lifetime uh, so far. Uh, and is that why you trained as a psychologist, do you think? B- because you were interested in the um, in the capacity of humanity and, the, um, and in order to unpack human behaviour? Well, I, look, I did psychology and social work and ended up with a degree in social work. So I didn't become okay. a psychologist per se, despite doing two years of honours psych at uni. But obviously studying psych and social work um, at Melbourne University did hone my interest in why people do things, for sure. But it's a bit like the chicken and the egg. Was yeah. I already interested in that issue? And that's why I studied those you know, social sciences. And how did it then turn into dance? Well, I had, uh, I was working in a um, therapeutic situation or, 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 or clinic that worked with disturbed children and their families. And they offered me a full-time job. Um, and there was a audition happening in uh, the Australian Ballet School for a contemporary company in New Zealand. They were just hiring up the Australian Ballet Studios premises. And I felt, and I'd been doing some extracurricular classes with an incredible woman called Margaret Lassica from Modern Dance Ensemble mm. uh, during my four years, well, yeah, of the last three years at university. And I thought, well, what I might do is I might go to the audition because there, I was a little bit tired of just hearing people's problems and I thought probably I'm not as sympathetic as I thought I might be. Um, so I went along to the audition and I was the only male, that, they were looking for male dancers, I was the only male that turned up and not unsurprisingly I got the job. <laughs> that must be why, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, um, and I went across to New Zealand and it was a joint tour with this company called Impulse Dance Theatre and the New Zealand Ballet and at that point I barely touched a ballet bar. So that was a um, trial by fire but it was just joyous that was jumping into a world and I wasn't embarrassed about being sort of um odd bloke out in the ballet classes Mm. and I would just you know the ballet teacher was great she'd give me very simple stuff to practice while everyone was doing very complicated enchaînements and I just lapped it up and um and that was really the how things just progressed. I then came back after doing a tour, thinking I should focus a bit more on classical dance and focused on that for a while. And then I got involved with a company called One Extra Dance Theatre that was run by Kei Tai Chan. And that was a very prominent company here in Sydney at the time. And then we travelled to London to do a show there and I stayed on and London Contemporary were doing auditions for their school. And I thought, well, I haven't really had any formal you know, you know eight hour day training mm. every dance so I auditioned and got a full scholarship there and I did the one year special course and then Emmeline Clay was running a company called Extemporary Dance Theatre mm-hmm. and uh, she saw me I was doing a Cage Cunningham workshop out of Guildford that was the Gulbenkian course that was run and uh, she saw me and asked me to join the company so I worked with her for four years and after four years of 
working with Extemporaneous was a really great experience, but I did get frustrated that I felt a lot of the work we were doing uh, was a bit of a con. Some of it was good, but some of it, but we were conning audiences about the depth of what we were presenting. Mm. And I just got tired a bit, you know, my, while my pirouettes improved, I felt like my neurons were decreasing. Mm. And I just felt that the world outside the dance studio was more interesting uh, and more fascinating and more complex than what we were presenting on stage. So uh, after four years, and Emmeline Clade, who ran the company, was great, and I'll always be indebted to her for that, um, for those four years of solid classes and exposure to, you know, a huge amount of different choreographers. So by the time I formed Eva, I'd worked with at least 28, 30 choreographers, and I just thought it was time for me to start doing my own work about uh, issues that were mm. uh, more uh, close to my heart, really, and more... I just did, I did, I want, as we used to say in our little deviate pack, um, it was about trying to present ideas clearly and unpretentiously. Um, so it was, we always, the line was, we, we were trying to be radical yet accessible at the same time. Mm. Yeah, and I think for me as a young person, um, watching that work in the early days, that's exactly what excited me was the fact that it was virtuosic, it was exciting, but it was really about something and I really could access it. Um, <clears throat> and it didn't need text to do that. Um, but yeah, I think for a whole generation of people my age, seeing the, you know, Enter Achilles kind of Dead Dreams of Monochrome Men era, it gave us a taste of what was possible, actually, uh, both in terms of the uh, emotional intensity and the virtuosity but also the, the commentary on society or or what it what it is to be a human um so thank you for that thank you, thank you for saying that <laughs> so basically when, when all is said and done you've had a career of confronting some of the most difficult issues then so for example religion as you said freedom of speech sexuality power abuse inequality culture sexuality tolerance, intolerance, intimacy, also loneliness, living with a disability, and themes like the pursuit of happiness or the role denial plays in our lives, just a few. Um, what do you make of all of that now? Do you, in the end, think that art can be an instrument for social change or not? Well, if I can, are you okay with me mentioning what you mentioned earlier? Of course, of course. Please okay, do. great. All right. So um, uh, Lou and I had a little discussion uh, and Lou mentioned that she had seen Enter Achilles and it was that that had drawn her to work as a dramaturg. Was that correct? That It was that that had drawn me to... I was thrilled by this sort of, you know, actually we called it total theatre in those days, but I was just thrilled to this place where we could, where the physicality was way beyond what we could do. We could theatre students, but it spoke to us of how, um, what an impact the performance could have. And as I say, with the sort of viscerality and the virtuosity. And I, and yes, as I said earlier, I, I'm not joking when I say a whole generation of people my age, I think our lives changed uh, in, in the ballroom there with, with the, in the dance hall with Nigel Charnock, because we understood the capacity for of performance. Um, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, um, look, there's a number of people who I know, even when Helen invited me, initially Helen Shute, who's the CEO of Rombear, invited me, well, wanted me to um, restage Strange Fish, and I said, you know, we had a little flirtation of trying to restage it. I'm talking about Strange Fish, aren't I? Did I say into Achilles? Sorry, I was talking about, yes. but it's all of them, but it's Strange Fish, the Nigel Charnock moment. Sorry, go on. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, you mentioned a moment in Strange Fish with Nigel. Yeah. Um, yes, no, Helen asked me to do Strange Fish and I said we'd flirted, I think it was probably about 15 years later, about redoing it. And all the characters were so individual the idea of trying to replicate them uh, was just impossible. We tried. We brought people from all over the world in to try out. Uh, and it just seemed, why would we redo a piece if you didn't have the original people? And whether it be Nigel's incredible ability to handle language and be comic, 
um, or Wendy's sort of dark comic tragedy, tragic quality, or mm. Melanie, you know, up on the cross, or um, Geordie, who moved incredibly. Um, and there was lots of Kate was there, and uh, there was lots of just remarkable. That was Kate Champion. Lots of remarkable people in that cast. Dale Tanner, and I just. Yeah, I just said to her, I can't, we can't recap this. It would just be less than the original. And I think that says something about when I make a work, I make it on those individuals and I use the history and the individual way those people move. And I absolutely believe that people who are still connected to their own body language and can connect meaning to movement, and there's a lot of dancers who can't do that, particularly if they're really highly trained, um, Indeed, yeah. I've auditioned a lot of principal dancers from a lot of the major companies around the world. And often what makes them a brilliant classical dancer impedes their ability to move in a naturalistic way. Um, you know, watching a group of ballet dancers, um, you know, in a discotheque uh, has, has often made me laugh. Um, that's not to say they're not incredibly brilliant in doing no, line of arabesques in Les Bayadere, uh, that I could only ever dream, you know, this of, of achieving this sort of near perfect arabesque. So I'm not, I'm just saying that it is about that connection to meaning. Um, yeah. So, um, look, there's been a lot of people I know who've come up to me and said, you know, Helen actually got involved in dance profession after seeing Strange Fish, one of her leading male dancers in Rombe came up to me and said he entered dance after seeing Andrew Achilles. So on one level, I know that it has had some impact on changing people's life. But if you, but what you said was, can dance be an instrument for social change? Um, well, it might have changed those people's lives a bit. Does it actually have, an, you know, can it be an instrument for social change? And um, look, I, I know when we did, um, can we talk about this? Uh, and we interviewed um, a number of people from, from Muslim backgrounds. In fact, over 50% of the interviewees were from Muslim backgrounds. And um, there were two prominent um, Muslims that I had interviewed or spoken to. One was conservative, an arch conservative, the other one was progressive. And after seeing, can we talk about this, which is about Islam and freedom of speech, they both decided to meet in a warehouse to try and mm. reconcile their differences. And when this was relayed to me, it felt like a scene out of Reservoir Dogs. Um, and it just felt like, okay, well, there is a dialogue. This piece has prompted a dialogue between two prominent individuals within the British Muslim community to see whether or not what common ground they had. So that has a little impact. I remember um, an Iranian refugee coming up to me after Can We Talk About This and saying, thank you for doing this work. It's like you've given voices, uh, the voice mm. to Iranian women who are suppressed by the religious, or by Islamists and the religious mullahs. Um, I also remember, you know, somebody coming up to me saying, well, you've got to avoid that guy over there because he's furious with you about the work and he's going to give you, he's going to punch you. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, and and of course, actually, and what's really important is one of our other interviewees, who was the head of the gender unit at um, Amnesty International, Gita Chagall, said to me in one, in when we interviewed her, "If you say anything of importance, someone somewhere will be offended." Mm. And I think that's reality. When you start doing work, you can you can have an impact, and clearly, the work did have an impact. I mean, how big or small is to be debated, but I would think perhaps it's a bit like the butterfly effect, that every little act contributes to, you know, to a bigger impact, whether it's obvious or not. And I would like to think that, you know, I had a small impact. At least it was uh, better than just doing abstract pretty shapes to a middle-class bourgeois audience who would applaud and then go home. Then the minute the show's finished, say, what, you know, where will we go for dinner and never speak about the piece again. Um, and I think, look, the other thing I want to say is that I... Yeah, I made the work because 
um, both as a dancer and seeing thousands of dance pieces over the well, at least probably two thousand dance pieces over the over the years. Um, I just get I really got tired of seeing program notes that suggested something was about social change, and then you would see the piece. Um, mm. And it would just drive me crazy because I thought people were pretending the work was about something when they were just really permutations of random steps. Um, mm. And the other day I went to see a work and the program note actually said these words, that the work evoked the tectonic forces that mould the earth, unquote, seriously. I mean, I just, it drives me bonkers and... I just, um, at least I feel I've made some attempt to try and address complicated issues, particularly with religious intolerance towards women, towards other religions, towards LGBT people. Um, at least I've tried to address this. Whether I've been mm. successful or not, who knows. But I would like to believe that what is on the label on the tin is what is inside the tin for our work. Yeah. And I just wish at times, um, you know, it's like, feels like it's a sort of uh, contravening, contravening the Trade Descriptions Act when people try and suggest their work is much more than it is. Um, it's mm. just infuriating. And I, you know, if it were, you know, if it was a product like a can of tuna, then that person could be fined. I mean, I think at very least audience members should be able to get their money back if the program note is not true to the piece, which would mean a lot of people would be getting their money back. Um, yeah, I totally hear you. And actually, I, I do feel that this is part of what drove my journey towards dramaturgy, which is about, I would say, is about finding the truth of what it is you're saying and trying to communicate that with an audience and that if you haven't communicated that with an audience somehow, then you have failed. That's how it feels to me. Um, and yeah, the sort of uh, integrity of that act and the exchange with the audience is everything uh, to me. Um, but yeah, in terms of social change, it, it seems to me that it's about individual by individual. Um, and of course, when, when a company gets as big and successful as, as DVA and reaches as many people, then that's a lot of individuals. And not only are you helping them think their way through the world but you're but you're creating the conversation and I know you do lots you did lots of post-show discussions etc those are the places as well as on stage as well as watching the show where I think society changes um and how um yeah fine about how successful that is or how or how far-reaching that is but it is person by person and I would suggest you did that enormously and also um well yeah that's the whole point, isn't it? And if we don't believe in that, then there's not much point in doing any of it. Isn't that right? Uh, well, that's what drove me. I think there are yeah. people, and I would really love it if just in a programme note somebody said this work is about nothing. It's essentially meaningless. I just like inventing pretty steps and movement phrases for the sake of um, the joy of moving. And I would mm -hmm. be fine for me. Or they just call it fair enough, yeah. dance, you know, 27. That is fine. It's when people, choreographers, play on, because a lot of, how many times have you heard from audience saying, uh, oh, I don't understand contemporary dance. There's Nigel Charnock, the wonderful Nigel Charnock, used to say it's because the choreographers don't understand. Uh, that's mm. often the issue. But I just want to add, and I think it's really important, I have made works that have not, you know, that have, have, have been stinkers. Um, and I'm not pretending that I have not failed. In fact, it goes back to that fantastic um, Beckett quote, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And I think if you've got the resilience, um, and I did notice a couple of choreographers who often get very bad press in the past, but they would still go on and make the next work. And I thought, if you have the wherewithal and sufficient resilience, um, and you can learn from those past mistakes, and I think some of my better work has come after a work that has not been so good, providing I can remain highly critical of my mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. So I just want to add that, that we've all, 
all, all choreographers I know, even the incredible Bina Bausch has made works that have been dull at times. Yeah, and if it was easy, it would be easy, hey? And and yeah, it, it's in the trying that we that we find our way, I guess. Um, so you've mentioned many of the brilliant performers you've worked with, uh, dancers, actors. What impact and influence did, did it have on you working with these little gods, shall I call them, with these amazing people? Um, well, I think for me, the... I don't want to, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to name individuals because I feel in, if I name some and I missed out others. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, I'm not asking you that. I'm just saying what's it, what, what do you appreciate in the amazing performers that you've worked with? Well, I think it goes back to the fact that these people are still connected to their body language, that their training hasn't er eradicated their understanding of body language and that they are deeply passionate um, and... People like Wendy and Nigel, it felt like they really couldn't live unless they performed. And it was interesting mm. that Nigel was performing, you know, late for a dancer, you know, into his 50s when he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Wendy mm. Houston is still performing and mm -hmm. she would be, you know, in her 60s. Uh, and I think for those people there was an absolute passion that theatre was really critical to their existence and you could feel that when they're on stage. Um, and they were hugely authentic. Um, so those elements uh, are really critical. And the thing that has driven me to make work is my interest in people. And mm. what I find fascinating about those movers, they still had their own individual way of moving, which meant that... And, you know, I wasn't interested in everybody looking the same, but they had a depth mm. of movement um, that they were, they still had access to. And sometimes I find the very, as I said before, the very highly trained dancers don't have those things. Yeah, I understand. They have to almost unlearn their training to be able to access yeah. but that, this, this depth. But I suppose that goes, that, you know, touches with the sort of things that I do need uh, when I'm, trying to find performers um, and often people would ask me that before we did auditions and when we were recasting Enter Achilles we did multiple auditions in London and then had to go to Europe and even went to came to Australia in an attempt to try and find blokes for Enter Achilles who looked like blokes but were also um, well also fulfilled the qualities I need in performers and that means um, you know a, an element of resilience so that they were able to be present and focused and stay focused in a rehearsal room. I work with, I work better with intelligent dancers than just dancers who can, you know, who disengage uh, intellectually. Um, mm -hmm. I like physically articulate and versatile dancers um, who are not locked into any one style of moving. As I said before, they still need to understand body language. And also I need an element of bravery and a readiness to sort of take on whatever tasks I might show. And sometimes those tasks, I ask people to be ridiculous or ugly. And there's a lot of dancers that that's difficult because everything in their training is about not looking ridiculous and ugly. Um, mm. And also some dancers aren't great at taking corrections. They So I know I need to have people who can hear the corrections and not only hear them, are able to put them into action quickly. Uh, and then good nature. Um, I've worked with a few prima donnas uh, in my time and uh, they are a pain in the butt. And I prefer a hard grafter who's honest and hardworking over a talented prima donna any day. And probably a couple of other things. They need to be punctual. Dancers are not on time, then they waste everybody else's time. And... Uh, that, that I've lost a couple of dancers who just could not be punctual. Um, mm. And also people who prepare and think between sessions. And the most interesting performers I know would, after we'd had a day of rehearsals and we'd discussed things and we'd worked on material, you felt the next day when they came back something had been processed and mm. they hadn't just left it at, you know, 
five or six o'clock and gone home and nothing been absorbed. And they are the exciting people because they, you know, working with them is like a two-way process. Um, they stimulate you, you stimulate them, and there's this building relationship. And it's, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, and what's it like to work for you as a performer, do you think? <laughs> Probably would be better to ask one of the performers. Well, I'm asking you. <laughs> um, what do you think, though? I mean, when you look when you look back at, um, presumably your uh it changed across the years depending on what you're making and what you're asking of people but what yeah what what do you think what do you think they'd say well look i think you know you could have a group of eight people and you could find four would say one thing you know two would say another and another two would say something else if you had you know. but you know i suppose if i can be objective and i'm never sure how objective people can be about themselves mm-hmm. um I would say, of course, I'm a tough but fair boss and I would expect the same commitment and preparation from my performers that I would give to them. Um, Mm. And certainly when, you know, just talking about sort of the last, uh, you know, arch of my work with the verbatim works, the performers who were trained dancers had to learn huge amounts of text. Um, and then we would work word by word or phrase by phrase to find the best and most precise movement to match those words, um, which is why it sort of ended up taking five months in the studio to make the work. And it was painstaking. And before I began working with the dancers, I, w- I spent, you know, nine months to a year um, you know, collecting interviews, editing interviews, reading up, you know, reading massive amount of material on the subject matter. Uh, because particularly when we did Can We Talk About This and you're interviewing prominent people, you need to have read their books. When you're questioning them, you need to not make a mistake. Uh, mm. You know, you need to show due diligence. So I would expect my performers to, um, yeah, to give as much as I was. And the really exceptional performers I knew one time, like, you know, a couple of wonder performers I had, Hannah's and Ara in can we talk about this? And they weren't the only, they were beautiful performers in Can We Talk About This? You know, really had a fantastic cast, just really exceptional people. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I just can't say how many, because there's been so many great and wonderful people I've worked with. But I know the dancers took the initiative and would, after after um, after working all day, would go to a gym on a treadmill and run their hearts out reciting the lines. And goodness knows what the rest of the people in the gym thought they were doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, they were, and, you know, once we got into rehearsals, I'd often do three shifts a day. The dancers only ever worked two, but say somebody worked in the morning and then worked an evening shift with me. I know quite often they would spend the afternoon, I mean, they were not compelled to do it, but they would spend the afternoon going through their text. So it was a tough time. And I remember Ara, um, and I say Ara, his good name's Ara Mandela Siobhan, speaking to a black dancer who we were interested in for the work. And he said, Ara, well, what do you have to do? And Ara explained all the stuff we had to do. And he went, no, I don't want to work that hard. And that was great. At least he was honest about that. So it was hard work and it was painstaking. And I would hope that the reward people got was the end product, you know. Um, and if it, yeah. and I think for the verbatim, I think for To Be Straight With You and Can We Talk About This and John, there was a lot of people uh, within the cast got something from the process and the, um, and the, you know, it, it, it is a hard work ethic, but I do know that a number of the dancers came back to us and said thank you for that. It's sort of it's mm. it's re-enlivened my interest in making work myself, um, and it's instilled in me a discipline that um, that's been really helpful. And also, I know that a lot of them felt very well treated by the company. You know, you. Um, in again, you know, it's the letters you get later on. And the office did an mm. incredible job looking after people, making sure that, you know, that they were, you know, they were cared for, particularly on tour. Um and yeah, equally, you know, I'd be in the studio every day at 8 p.m. ensuring that I'd done three and a half hours prep 
before walking into the studio with the dancers out of respect for them, for myself and for the work. Uh, and I think there's sort of, you know, the exceptional dancers got that. Um, you know, occasionally you get a dancer who's there for the wrong reasons and that that is tough for everybody, for them and for me. Um, but, mm. you know, there were some really, um, there were some very rewarding moments in rehearsals, a lot of rewarding moments. But, uh, yeah, we all had to work hard. Yeah, I understand. You 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 get out what you put in, I guess. Um, okay, you've spoken since, um, you know, calling it a day with Deviate, you've spoken about the pressure of holding this huge company above your head and you said that your arms no longer wanted to do that, which I thought was a really beautiful way of putting it. Um, also that 30 years of overworking as part of a team that was too small, it takes its toll. What are your reflections on, on what it's like running a company of this scale in the UK, obviously traveling the world, but based here? And how do you feel we as a nation uh, look after our art and our artists now that you're looking back at it? Well, I think the issue of burnout with choreographers who lead or, you know, lead their own companies or form their own companies um, is quite universal. And I've spoken to a lot of the world's leading choreographers over the years who had to stop running their own companies because they sort of felt they just couldn't do it all and they burnt out. They might still be affiliated with the company, you know, come in as a guest choreographer, but the actual pressure of trying to run a company and everything that's involved with that, you know, the personnel, the HR, the marketing, the uh, fundraising, uh, the touring, everything um, was just that and choreographing was just too overwhelming. And we'd spoken a lot at DV8 and also with the Arts Council about the Dana danger of burnout, especially with regards to me as being sort of creative, you know, central creative force behind the company. Mm. But I don't think it registered with us as a company until it was a little bit too late, really. Um, and I, yeah, and oh, for example, there was one point when I had a very exceptional performer and uh, they had a panic attack and I had a brilliant assistant at the time um, and she said to me, uh, we need, we need, some support and within literally heard about that the weekend and by the Monday I was on the phone chasing a top therapist or psychiatrist called Steve Peters who wrote the uh, chimp paradox and mm. by the middle of the week I had secured him to come in and work with our performers to ensure that they were looked at being looked after um I think the issue was I wasn't as good at looking after myself. And mm. at one point when I suggested, and we had a very good and efficient administrative team, they were great. But at one point when I said we all needed more staff, both for the office and for myself in rehearsals, certainly in comparison to my uh, colleagues, you know, international colleagues and British colleagues who were doing the same touring circuits, we were very short-staffed, both in the office and rehearsals. And I remember one of the senior people in my organisation said, but you've always done it like this. And, and that was true, but there is something called cumulative exhaustion. Um, and I was sort of asking for it, you know, it was toward, you know, maybe the last two and a half, three years, you know, short of the 30 years I've been running the company. And... Um, these other colleagues I'd spoken to who had had burnout had often stopped well before that time. And um, I just remember one evening session when I was working with a dancer and we didn't have a stage manager and, you know, um, I don't know, I'd probably have to have some, take some responsibility and the idea that we could all do multiple jobs at Deviate and we would work would be fleet of foot and at any time that we wanted to pack the company up we could which is why we never had bought permanent studios um and we only had really two and a half people in the office as permanent staff and mm. bring our stage manager and and we had some brilliant you know technical people working for us over the years but we were we had a skeletal structure and uh this evening i was working the revolve working the sound working the video 
while trying to choreograph and direct a performer. And I just, and then at the very end, you know, night, we finished rehearsal at nine o'clock and had to do a sweep of the building to lock up. And, um, and I just thought to myself, something needs to change here. Uh, I just, I, I felt uh, exhausted and frankly quite lonely, you know, going through this building. And I, that, had, that feeling had started to build up quite a lot. And it's often passion that drives people to make work in the arts and you do anything you can to make a work happen. Um, and you, of course, you're constantly mindful about saving money. But in the end, you've got to realise, and if maybe this is something that, if there are any choreographers that are listening, young or old, um, if you don't look after yourself, then probably nobody else is going to do it for you. So you need to... Um, find ways, and I'm very happy to talk privately to any COVID that's really, you know, reached a sort of point where they're, they're, they're struggling because um, I did go and see somebody for a little bit of counselling and they were very helpful. Um, they said just, actually, there's one really wonderful story they told me. Um, and uh, I would, I'm happy to relay that to people privately rather than during this, this um, but uh, yeah, you do need to look after yourself. And um, we really probably all should have acknowledged a bit earlier on. But that's the advantage of having often trying to have somebody from outside, a third party come in and do a company and going, okay, let's have a little look at this. And sometimes I think it's good to uh, bring someone in to question the structure that maybe you've all taken for granted and not seen the pitfalls for. And I'm sure a lot more companies could do that. They did have a thing oh, I think it was about 15 years ago, where I remember Sue Hoyle and the Arts Council being involved in it. Mm. They invited, not even been longer than 15 years, they invited uh, people who ran major dance companies to get together and exchange ideas, and that was great. You just heard about how other people ran things. And when I stopped working for Deviate or put Deviate on hold, I went to a major theatre company and I said, can I just spend six weeks watching you in rehearsal? Mm. At one point, there were three people in the corner. I said, well, what do they do? And then they said, well, they operate, they're involved, they operate the sound, they operate the video, they run and get props. And I thought, oh, that's things that I spent, you know, some of my time doing. And, um, you know, of course, I, I had an assistant, but that assistant also had to be tour manager. And I had some brilliant assistants in the last few, or the last three projects, absolutely excellent. But, again, they had they had to be tour manager as well. Um, and they couldn't be there for three sessions a day. Um, and I didn't want them to be. I didn't want anyone else to work the hours I was working. Um, so it got to a point where I just decided um, that, and I've always been very sceptical about the word happiness. I realised I was short of happiness. And, mm. um, and I remember, well, Nigel had died a few years before. And that was very had a very profound effect on a number of us from the early DV8 days. Mm. And I just thought, and then Pina Bausch died, and I thought, do you know what? I don't want to die in a studio. I want to have another life beyond working six and a half days a week. There's got to be more. And um, that's when I put the company on hold and I, my partner, you know, I, I said, I'm going to take nine months off and just see what happens. And my humour came back. I actually started being funny again, which surprised <laughs> me. I remember hearing myself laugh. I thought, well, I have heard that for a long time. Um, and I just had time. That very thing, you know, as you get older and you approach 60, which I was doing, you start having the thing you don't have is time. And mm -hmm. I then had time to exercise regularly, to see friends and family. And there's a marvellous study done, one of the longer, you know, longitude, I think it's about 70 plus years, called the Grant Study in America. And it started off examining or interviewing Harvard male graduates uh, about their lives, uh, what their aspirations were. They, they looked at their health and notions of happiness or depression and it followed them. And it's just a very detailed study. And at one point they worked in tandem with um, un, uh, about 250 underprivileged um, working class men. I think they were in Boston. And 
this is a very profound study because what they found, and probably to put it in a nutshell, is that what really makes a person happy is not the achievements or looking at a, just one section of your life, but looking at your life over your lifespan became very apparent. And the notion that often what makes people have, uh, makes them happy and makes them content and uh, gives them good health is having worthwhile relationships. And in order to have worthwhile relationships, you've got to put time into them. And I, when I was working, had no time. Well, I had an incredible partner of 27 years, who's David Thompson, who's remarkable, really. Um, and uh, I just thought it was time for me to reconnect with my friends and look after my wonderful elderly parents and have time to exercise daily, to redo all the activities that I had not done for a very long time. And uh, it worked. I was very clear after that nine months that I did not want to make any new work again. And very gradually, we started winding down the company. We kept it open because uh, I was making the work for Andrew Kelly's for Rombear, and we thought at one mm. point they might want financial assistance. So we kept the company ticking over. And then, unfortunately, of course, we made the work, um, and there were, we had a wonderful group of technicians and performers. And um, and some of the things I learned from my last you know, the last period of debate I made sure didn't happen again. Like we had a constant stage manager and the sound mm. uh, technician mm. was there most of the time in rehearsals. You know, we had really clean studios. So I didn't have to bother cleaning the floors <laughs> myself. And it was a joy um, just to be in that environment with that support. But COVID closed down the tour. We had a 20, 21-month tour. And after one month uh, in four different cities, uh, it closed and those guys who were um, you know, had been brought specially together from outside for and Achilles, you know, were then then unemployed. Um, mm. But it was that point I thought, well, that that was my last little venture, restaging and Achilles. That's really it now. I'm very happy to, I feel very content to just enjoy life. Gosh, it's... Um... Well, well done for reaching that point. And also well done for reaching the point where you weren't cleaning your own studio. Um, but it's it's not a great indictment of the funding system that asks that much of you and of artists. And yes, of course, you have some responsibility for for what you allowed to happen and for choosing to work all day and all night. But, but you know, you had to make the work and, and the funding system didn't give you the support you needed. Um, and I think that's really sad to hear. And Wait a second, no, I'm, I'm uh, going to jump in there. I'm not sure the funding body didn't because they, I think there could have been funds. Well, I know there, that we could have had funds, but I think that I'd set up a precedent of... Um, because at one point you asked me, you know, why didn't you use a dramaturg? And it was very much, I, the work was very much about me presenting my perspective on the world. Um, and and I know that people like Nigel, who were just fantastic and amazing to work with, decided in the end, I remember him saying to me, look, you know, I want to be able to go up and, and speak about my own things, which I totally encouraged uh, and endorsed. I mean, I think it's wonderful when the people who've worked with me have gone out and made their own work and felt um, empowered or, or want to do that. Mm. Um, but I think, going back to the victim thing, I think that there was this, I, I sort of was operating a bit as a one-man band at times because I wanted control over the work and there was a naivety of not really understanding um the benefits of having a full-time stage manager, of having a separate tour manager to, you know, an assistant who was helping me in rehearsals. Um, so there was an element of naivety from my point of view. And then I think that was absorbed by the board and the administration team that mm. didn't do this. Um, but ultimately, I suppose the person who paid the biggest price was me. But... And I was driven. I think also I, you know, this is there is a sort of slight sickness when you relate the the quality of the work you produce to who you are, and I think that was a danger. Your ego gets 
bent and you think you are the work. I remember uh, some people we knew uh, had invited us to dinner and they came to see a work and then they invited us to dinner because they didn't like oh my God. They didn't like the work. And it wasn't even about the subject matter. They just did not like the work. It wasn't like, you know, oh, no. someone might have an opinion about, you know, Islam and freedom of speech that, you know, and I, you know, we were very active in presenting even the voices of people that I even vehemently disagreed with in can we talk about this uh, and also to be straight with you but uh yeah they, they just disinvited us and I know one presenter who ran away from me for about five years because she did not she didn't like one work we'd done uh and that's weird but wow. I also had got caught up in that that I was the work and that I think sort of was not healthy um because you know sometimes I would end up in a cul-de-sac you know drive my car round and round um and I'd just taken the wrong path. And by the time the show gets on tour and then you've got to be with it for 18 months, uh, that's painful. That's the cost. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I don't want to just blame the Arts Council on that. I think we all had some responsibility and possibly I should have pushed harder um, and been a bit more demanding about getting people in sooner. Um, mm. But, again, you're doing everything. You know, you don't want what do what do you do to make to sort of put your foot down um, because you, you know, you can't say, well, I'm not going to turn up to rehearsals because until I get more help, because that would be detrimental to the work. Um, so I think it's often good. I often wonder why companies don't have someone uh, who's been through it all and is on the outside and can just give a little bit of worldly advice from a distance that doesn't have any invested interest, you know, i.e. being on the board or in the admin team. Um, and I sometimes wonder why that doesn't happen because it might have been good to have an ally outside or, or not even an ally, a dispassionate person who could look. And um, I think it was probably pretty clear in the last two and a half years I was struggling, wouldn't have taken too much um, uh, insight to realise that I was struggling. I was running on empty. Mm. You realise you're describing a dramaturg, yeah? <laughs> um, no, I don't think I'm. I think I'm describing a therapist, actually. Um, well, I, you know, I, I would say that that is the point of a dramaturg is to have somebody on the outside, from the outside, spend some spending some time on the inside obviously to help with the making of the work and everything, but also to offer that distance. I mean, we don't need to get into that, but literally that is how I, how I would but describe. I suppose I was looking, I felt it just needed somebody very simply who could look at structure of the company. And that was almost yeah. all needed. Somebody to say, yes, he needs two more people in rehearsals and the office needs two or three more people because, you know, um, as amazing as the, you know, um, that the team were doing and they, everybody was doing their very best and working very hard, uh, of course. we could have done with just that outside eye and those extra employees in another capacity. Yeah. And like I say, when I went to work at Bromberg, I made sure I didn't repeat any of those mistakes I had. And Helen Shoot was very generous in providing me with that support. Um, and it was glorious going into that lovely, clean building. And mm. I so often thank the cleaner, you know, when... He'd come out of the studio and it was just a joy to have that level of support. Hmm. Well, you got there in the end and it's just so heartbreaking that it didn't happen. Um, the tour didn't fully happen because of COVID. Um, Lloyd, we've come to the end of our time. I'm so grateful um, to you <laughs> for your life's work, uh, but also for you, to you for spending this hour with me. Um, are you really retired? I mean, is that really it? Um, look, apart from the occasional uh, lecture I give with, you know, video clips of my work and in exceptional circumstances, I'll do a couple of workshops. But basically, I, I've turned down most work now because I really enjoy my freedom. And I know that the minute I'm asked to do something, I start getting into a bit of a, you know, an old habit and rut and... Um, of you know doing a massive amount of preparation and you know I stop exercising mm. daily and I stop seeing people mm. and it's it's not good and and I you know I, I've made a very clear decision to enjoy my life and uh, to be around mm. people that uh, I like and love 
and to do the things that give me joy, including fishing. I'm a very keen fisherman, but that wasn't just a... I was going to ask, so that's real, is it, that photo? Uh, I mean, that is, that is what you're doing. That is absolutely what I'm doing. And I find, you know, getting to, mm. you know, a beach just before, you know, um, the sun rises and then, you know, you're there with your rod and the sun rises and you see the magnificence of nature and... It's just, uh, it's incredibly um, calming and, and wonderful. That's so nice to hear. I can't imagine that that, yeah, compared to cleaning a dance studio, I, I, yeah, I can see why you've made the choice you have. And also you've earned it, a lifetime of hard work. Um, so now you get to enjoy some, as you say, time with family, friends and yeah, some pleasure, some happiness perhaps. Uh, thank you so much, Lloyd. It's a real pleasure for me to talk to you. I'm sure people will really enjoy hearing about, uh, um, you know, everything you've said. And thank you for all the work you made. A pleasure. Thank you very much for interviewing me, Lou. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. My pleasure. that was the final episode of season two of downtime and what a way to go out thank you to lloyd and to all my brilliant guests throughout both seasons it's been a real and inspiring privilege to be able to have such in-depth conversations with such a range of amazing artists and leaders from right across the world i'd never have thought such a thing was possible and i hope you've enjoyed it as much as i have Thanks to my brilliant team, project manager Lindsay Witten, transcribers Luanne Taylor and Matty Blake, composer and sound engineer Christian Steffis, social media ace Neve Hicks, and website manager Sama Mara. And also thanks to Teresa Beatty for her ongoing friendship and wisdom, and to Arts Council England for the funding of season two. For more information about me, my work as a dramaturg, the courses I run, and the artists and organisations I work with, all through COAD, the Centre of Applied Dramaturgy, go to www.thecoad.org. Downtime may well be back in one way or another, one day, somehow, but for now, thanks for listening. May you be lucky and well enough to have a little inspired downtime of your own. <laughs>